0: Welcome to Access Utah, this is Sherry Quinn.
1: My name is Emma Maris and I'm an environmental writer and I'm here in Logan, Utah to talk to um, for Natural Resources Week at Utah State University.
0: She describes how the book idea came about.
1: For a long time I was a reporter at the scientific journal Nature and um, while I was there my beat was ecology and conservation biology. So I would You know, go to those conferences, read those journals, talk to those scientists. And I started noticing a couple of themes coming up over and over again. Themes about sort of what the goals of an ecological restoration should be or questions about how pristine a landscape really was before Europeans got there. Um, Discussions about how we could go about the business of conservation um, in a climate changing world. And I kind of thought that all of these sort of shared some had themat- All these questions had some themes in common, which were sort of how you 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 proceed with conservation in a forward-looking way in a changing world. And so I decided it was something that it would, it would be fun and exciting to write a book about. So I got a book contract, and, and that's how I wrote Rambunctious Garden.
0: Marys discovered conservation programs across the world and visited two main kinds of them during the course of her research.
1: There were projects that are that were explicitly about trying to return an ecosystem back to uh, some kind of historical state. So uh, I went to a project in Hawaii where they were were pulling out all the plants that were not native to Hawaii, all the plants that weren't there when people first arrived uh, in their canoes um, many years ago. So, and then I went to a a project in Australia where non-native predators like cats and foxes were being removed from this little area of the outback. So I went to those kinds of projects, which were all sort of about trying to uh, turn back the clock. And I think we're all a little more familiar with that kind of approach. But then I also went to these weirder projects where... um, There was work being done that was doing things like increasing diversity or restoring sort of ecological functions that had been lost, but they weren't using the exact same species that used to be there. So there was one project in the Netherlands where an ecologist had created a kind of an open savanna-like landscape that like one that he believes was there thousands of years ago, but instead of it being wild horses and aurochs and these other extinct animals, it was um, sort of interesting breeds of domesticated animals that were filling in and doing these roles of grazing, and uh, on the landscape. So that was a really interesting place. It was sort of a, you know, a savanna in uh, just like half an hour away from Amsterdam. Kind of a fascinating place.
0: Can you talk about the de extinction project uh, based in San Francisco?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I, I, I touch on it very briefly in the book, but, you know, they, they hadn't done quite as much work on it by the time I I turned in my manuscript. Uh, the passenger pigeon, the big push to bring back the extinct passenger pigeon hadn't really um, gone forward. So uh, Stuart Brandon and Ryan Phelan are, are sort of actively working with geneticists and biologists to take a look at living relatives of this extinct bird that was once incredibly numerous on the East Coast and is now gone and seeing if they can use related species and then some sort of genetic tweaks to to more or less bring back this extinct animal from the dead. And and it's you know I I have I'm of two minds about it uh, cuz on the one hand the, there is a very powerful criticism which I think bears some listening to which is that this is going to cost a fortune and you know uh with that money we could do a lot more kind of less glamorous conservation but that's probably more effective um, for a larger number of species. Things just like buying land and setting it aside or doing sort of real regular conservation projects involving reestablishing missing species from landscapes. And Okay, but having said all that, I can see the appeal of this because it's about trying to sort of um, bring back what we've lost. Um, And it's also interesting because it's marrying two different strands of environmentalism. So on the one hand, it's all about going back and and recreating those past uh, landscapes, which is a sort of a much more traditional wilderness-focused strain of environmentalism. But it's doing so with this sort of high technology, which is a a much different strand of environmentalism, this idea of using technology to solve uh, ecological and environmental problems. So I think it's interesting, and it's really interesting to see who supports it and who doesn't, and how that kind of plays out. Um, will um, what they call de-extinction be a major fo- focus in conservation, or should it? I don't. I don't really think so. I think um, what we should be really concerned about is the many, many species that are in trouble, or that exist but are not really kind of uh, they're not playing their functional roles on the landscape. And if we could restore the those um, back meaningfully to the landscape, it might be more meaningful than, you know, this sort of, uh, I was going to say parlor trick, but maybe that's too dismissive, but, but it might be more meaningful than this kind of gee whiz stuff about bringing them back from the dead. But who knows in another couple hundred years, so it's an interesting thing to keep an eye on.
0: You talk about these non-native jungles of Hawaii and, and what is appealing to you about them?
1: So these are, these are these fascinating landscapes that, that I really fell in love with in a major way. The, um, the term that ecologists use for them is novel ecosystems, but you everybody who's listening has probably seen one of these. These are the ecosystems that kind of spring up by the side of the road in abandoned fields, empty lots. A lot of times there's a lot of non-native plant species in there, some non-native animal species. They're kind of weedy, and nobody really pays any attention to them. Um, but what's really fascinating about them is that they don't uh, really look like we expect, like we expect non-native dominated systems to look like. Because when we learn about invasive species, we learn about kudzu or zebra mussel, it's these species that are incredibly, um, incredibly, you know, pervasive on the landscape. And that just really create this monoculture, and you, it's kudzu as far as the eye can see. But what was really interesting about these novel ecosystems that I visited in Hawaii is that they were actually really diverse. There was, you know, the trees from Australia and ferns from Southeast Asia, and there were some native Hawaiian plants in there. And they were actually, and, you know, they'd done the studies on this, they were actually as diverse or even more diverse than the native Hawaiian systems. And novel ecosystems aren't just in Hawaii, they're all over there, in the Philippines. In, so the the big question mark, and there's, you know, a lot of, acreage is covered by these kinds of systems these days. And it's only gonna increase as the climate changes and as more plant animals move around and as people put more pressure on landscapes. So what do we do with these? Um, Do we just dismiss them as sort of trash and weeds because they're non-native or, and and, you know, I think that's a mistake because then we might as well just be handing them over to to be paved over and turned into a strip mall or something, right? I think that they're actually fascinating places that we can really learn from about what is going to be thriving and robust and resilient in the future as, as all these forces continue to play out. In um, in a strange way, they're, they're almost more wild than places like Yellowstone because places like Yellowstone are actually being very, very carefully managed by professional scientists in order to look the way they did back when they were made parks or back before Europeans got to a place these novel ecosystems aren't being managed at all. And that's, I find that really appealing. I find that, that, you know, there's some wilderness to them.
0: How do you define wilderness and especially today and how that definition, how, how has that definition changed?
1: That's a great question. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm working with it. (laughs) I'm, I'm working on it because if you look at the Wilderness Act, um, there are sort of two properties that are kind of assumed that wilderness has in the wording of that act and one is that it's unchanged i think the act used the words prime uses the word primeval um, and then the other property is that it's unmanaged so it talks a lot about man as a visitor who does not remain and you know the hand the work of man is largely unnoticeable so so in order to be a wilderness in the sort of you know wilderness act of 1964 sense you want it to both be unchanged and unmanaged and the paradox is that of, of 2014 is you can't really have both at the same time. If you don't manage it, it will drift. It cha- you will see changes due to climate change. We'll see changes due to non-native species moving in. We'll see changes because of what's happening on adjacent parcels that are being used by humans. Um, so if you want it to look like unchanged, you actually have to go in there and, and, and wrestle with the changes and beat them back actively. So, the question is sort of which of these properties gets to inherit the title of wilderness? Is it the ones that look unchanged or the ones that are, uh, that are unmanaged? And if it's the ones that look, un- look unchanged, and I think that's where a lot of people's heart is, you know, because they like that sense that, that they haven't changed. But I think my heart is with the ones that are unmanaged. Because to me, that's the true, that's the real heart of wildness for me, is that it's doing its own thing. So for me, these novel ecosystems are the new, wil- the new wilderness.
0: I spend a lot of time in the Redwood Forest in Northern California, and a forest that has been heavily logged and also impacted by the, and hurt, actually, by the marijuana industry. And what is your perspective on how to manage a forest like this? And some people argue and even fight to leave it alone and do nothing while others have management plans in place, such as thinning underbrush, et cetera?
1: You know, the the way I wrote my book and the way that I try to talk about these issues is, is, okay, so if going backwards is not going to be a realistic goal or a goal that we should even necessarily embrace, because a lot of times going backwards doesn't make that much sense, you know, then what should our goal be? And I get pressed on that a lot. And I actually don't think that I get to say, you know, (laughs) I think that societies have to decide, communities have to decide, I, I, in the book, I talk about some potential goals, like avoiding extinctions, biodiversity. These days, you hear a lot of people talking about ecosystem services, you know, things that nature does for humans. Um, You'll also hear a lot of people talking about the sort of right of all these species to exist, a sort of more biocentric approach. Um, And I actually do think that for a lot of these goals, our management will be similar, uh, no matter what we pick. So in the case of the Redwoods, for example, I can't imagine any uh, conservation goal that wouldn't include... Don't cut down any more, you know, any more old-growth redwoods, right? Um, so, so that will be a core part of it. Um, there, then, but then there's the sort of the other sort of more uh, futuristic questions. So, if there's less moisture coming off the ocean, if that's going to negatively affect the redwoods, what can we do about that? You hear ecologists joking about mist machines. Um, I've, <laughs> I've heard that. Let's just put some misters in there and keep them, keep them moist. Um, Obviously not doable on a large scale, but, you know, that is the kind of thinking that you hear more and more now. Um, I've also heard people in the timber industry talk about planting redwoods and sequoias um, as a timber species. And not only in their historical range, but actually in some newer places that are now that they think it might be a good fit for as the climate changes. And with those plantations, there could always be set-asides that won't be harvested. Um, So... You know, along with the sort of core values of conservation, which is protecting big areas of habitat, these are some of the kind of weirder options that we can start thinking about as we move into the more uncertain future, I think.
0: Coyotes and cougars are increasingly sighted on the outskirts of communities and cities, and particularly in Utah, from what I know. And also now we're dealing with how to incorporate the wolf back in into the forests surrounding our communities and ultimately our lives
1: yeah and I think that when it comes to wolves and coyotes and cougars and I mean I'm a huge fan of 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 large carnivore conservation this has been something that's been important to the conservation movement forever but I think that what might change with that is not you know I don't think we should give up our carnivores but I think that we need to focus more on how to have carnivores and people on the same landscapes so Instead of just trying to create super huge reserves for carnivores, we should still try to do that, but we should also look at about how carnivores and humans can coexist in the same space. And I think we're going to have to do that, because as the population grows, as people move around, if we want to have wolves everywhere, we've got to figure out strategies to have wolves and people in the same place. We just are, and so uh, conservation expands from being just just a thing about. Um, you know, using science to plan perfect parks, and now it becomes that, plus all these fascinating sociological questions and um, kind of amazing sort of hacks about how to, like there's a great paper recently about creating temporal reserves for the tiger. So tigers are mostly uh, often very active at night, and the people in the landscape are active during the day, and if you actually kind of formalize that and kick all the people out at dusk, and then let them back on when the tigers go to bed in the morning, you can actually have tigers and people on the same landscape with a minimum of conflict. So I think those kinds of strategies are going to become more and more important if we really want to have carnivores in our, in our humanized world.
0: What sort of responses are you getting from conservationists?
1: Well, uh, mixed, definitely. And I think that's great. I think these are really exciting conversations to have um there's been a lot of enthusiasm from within conservation and ecology about some of these ideas and obviously i am not making these up right like, i'm reporting on what conservation biologists and ecologists are doing and what they're thinking and new new exciting terms like novel ecosystems and assisted migration and um but there's definitely a group that is that is that that does not like these ideas and that would prefer to um stick with sort of more t- tried and true definitions of wilderness or um uh, sort of this you know doesn 't like the idea of trying to integrate human concerns so so much into conservation, so there 's definitely been some um, impassioned debate, which I think is a good thing um, it 's been a little <laughs> a, a little terrifying for me because of some of the people who are disagreeing with me are some of the people who 've been my idols um, just like really prominent conservationists who 've just done incredible amazing work in their careers so i 'm engaging with them and trying to have a, a kind of an intellectual debate with them at the same time as I'm trying to make clear how, how much I respect their work, their body of work. So it's it's been interesting.
0: Can you say who some of them are?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I've, I've gone back and forth, for example, with Michael Soule, who practically, he and his um, colleagues practically coined the term conservation biology. So... Um, there's just an editorial that's coming out, um, you know, in a, in a journal with uh, where he's, an, uh, he's an author also, John Turberg at Duke, another amazing, uh, ecologist and, uh, Brian Miller who, who reintroduced the black-footed ferret. I mean, these are, these are fantastic guys. So, <laughs> so I'm hoping that, you know, we can, we can talk about this and, and, uh, learn from each other. And I'm obviously learning a ton from them and have for many years.
0: And I imagine it's an area where there's a lot of passion.
1: And thank goodness. I mean, you know, when people get you, you get frustrated with me and don't like my ideas, it, I can, it can hurt. It can hurt. But I remember that that same passion is why conservation has been able to protect 13% of the planet. Um, you know, we need to have that passion, and, and these, the, these discussions are going to be passionate because people care about this stuff, and thank God they do.
0: Can you address the notion that in nature there's equilibrium or or some say a balance.
1: And I think this is this is one that even my critics would agree with me on is that the ecology has really moved past this notion that there is a kind of a stasis or a stable state for every ecosystem. Um, sort of in 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 decade, decades ago there's this was more of a current idea this idea that okay, you might have this occasional disturbance, you might have a windstorm, you might have a fire. But then after that disturbance um slowly the ecosystem will heal back to its climax state, and it'll just stay like that forever as long as there's not another disturbance. Um, but because of the amazing work of paleo- paleoecologists and historical ecologists who are really kind of just, you know, they're they're looking at fossilized pollen, they're looking at tree rings, they're looking at pack rat middens, they're doing all this super cool work, and they're creating these narratives of ecosystems through time that really show that they're changing all the time. Um, you know, certain trees that go together in our Mines, uh, you know, like sage and juniper, wouldn't necessarily always have been together in the long run over thousands of years. Um, Certain, you know, ecosystems that seem to us to be timeless are not. And one analysis suggested that there's really no kind of ecosystem that's been together for longer than about 12,000 years. So this stuff is changing all the time. Now, that doesn't mean that all change is good or that every change should be encouraged, you know, we've got to bring our own moral values into this. We've got to bring our own goals into this. But I think that the idea that there is some kind of correct state for each ecosystem really does need to be questioned.
0: There's a trend towards small-scale farming, and I know of several communities that are cultivating localism and see that as the way to combat climate change and, and other problems in society. And how do you feel about the state of U.S. agriculture
1: yeah, so agriculture is, I think you're absolutely right, like agriculture is the key to the puzzle in, in a lot of ways. Because if you just look at the sheer amount of land that is, ter- that is you know, currently being used for crops or, or, or livestock or grazing, it just boggles the mind. I mean, it's a massive percentage, like 75% of the ice-free land or something like that. So if we get, if we can figure out, if we can do agriculture right, then we're, then we're in pretty good shape. Um... And so I have been reading a lot and studying a lot about uh, localism, for example, versus these other arguments that, no, actually, we should have these really centralized, super efficient, highly industrialized farms, squeeze all these calories out of every square foot and then have more land left over for non-agricultural purposes. And of course, the correct answer will probably not be one or the other. It'll probably be some combination depending on the landscape and depending on the crop and... You know, I don't know the right answer for, about this. I know that there are there are problems with the idea of doing everything really locally because it means a million little tiny trucks going everywhere and the yields are lower. And there are problems with doing everything in a centralized way too um, as far as inputs and, and um, transportation, carbon, and all that stuff. And I think that the math on this is going to be really tricky. But I know that there's some p- people who are working on it and I think it's going to be really interesting to see how how they analyze this. It's, more of an, it's almost an economics problem, but I think it's something that we really do need to get right just because agriculture is such a huge user of land.
0: We're just about out of time, and so can you talk about what you're working on now and what we can expect next?
1: So I'm working, I'm doing some, you know, magazine writing, which is sort of my core business. I just wrote a piece for Nature about Yellowstone Wolves, um, and I'm also working on a textbook, which will hopefully be out in a year or two from Roberts and Company. So I'm really looking forward to that. It'll be Environmental Science 101, and um, and it's really exciting. And uh, I'm learning a lot uh, by writing it.
0: Thanks for listening. This is Sherry Quinn for Access Utah.